If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I will try to summarize, once we get started, I'll try to summarize verses 13 through 23, but our main focus will be verses 24 through 28. Let's pray as we begin. Father, our source of joy can often be something other than you and what you've done. Grant us the grace we need to celebrate you, to look and see who you are and what you have done in, your per, in the person of your Son, Jesus. Grant us the willingness to hear what your word has to say and what kind of life it summons us to live, especially on a day like today where our calendars reset and it's the beginning of a new year. I pray that these words from our Lord Jesus would set the agenda for us not only as individuals, but perhaps even more importantly as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So every year I try to do this, where we have a state of the pulpit address, if you will. It it kind of summarizes some of what we've done and what our life together has been about in the previous year, and then also hopes to set a, uh, a vision for what our life can be together in the new year. So we're picking up the story, a little bit of context, as I said. We're picking up the story at the end of a very consequential and important conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples, particularly Peter. And it's dangerous to jump into a conversation near the very end. Have you ever done that before? You walk up and it's like, and so, and then the conclusion like, oh, and what were y'all talking about? That's basically what we're doing in verses 24 through 28. So I'm going to try to summarize uh, very quickly the the verses I mentioned. Uh, The conversation has been essentially about three things. Number one, who Jesus is. Number two, what he came to do. And number three, how we should respond given who he is and what he came to do. We join the conversation, uh, basically verses 24 through 28, answer in full what we should do in light of who he is and what he came to do. That's, That's how the passage So to summarize verses 13 through 20, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Anointed One, and He is in fact the Son of God. So many movies, books, different kinds of media have the concept of a chosen one or a hero of the story. The one who comes to do the big thing that needs to be done to wrap up all the purposes, all the concepts, to finish the plot. Jesus of Nazareth a Jewish man that lived 2,000 years ago, is that person. He's the main protagonist of the entire thing. All of creation is not about God in some generic sense. And it's not about being a good person. The whole story, the whole point of creation is found in that person, Jesus. And he explicitly claims this in these verses, verses 13 through 20, responding to Peter getting the answer right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From other places in the Bible, we know that Jesus is not just the hero of the story. Further, the whole story was written to show just how good and glorious and beautiful and deserving of your praise 
Jesus Christ really is. Do you understand your world that way? That the reason there are such things as rocks, rivers, trees, stars, black holes, humans, and the whole thing is to prove just how wonderful and good the Lord Jesus is. So that's verses 13 through 20. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus moves from, number one, as we saw, who He is, to number two and three, what He came to do and how we should respond to it. He explicitly states what He came to do. He came to die and rise again. Why does He do that? What is that all about? If all the story is about Him and He's the hero of the story, why does He need to be handed over and mocked and killed and rise again? Peter, obviously confused by this same question, states his outright opposition to this plan. No, this is not how the story goes. God's anointed, God's Son, is not supposed to be treated this way. If you've seen the classic film, The Princess Bride, at one point the grandson to whom the story is being read cries out in protest to his grandfather who's reading it to him. He hears something he doesn't like and he says, I'm telling you, you're getting the story wrong. You're, you're telling it wrong. Get it right. You're messing up the story. That's essentially what Peter's doing right here. It's not fair. It's not right that God's Son should be treated this way. Jesus begins to show us, number three, how we should respond to all that He is and all that He came to do by claiming that that type of reasoning, that reasoning that calls His purpose and dying and rising again foolish is is actually human reasoning or even satanic reasoning. So here's what we have so far as I'm summarizing verses 13 through 23. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the hero of the story. And He's the one this whole thing is about. Number two, He came to be betrayed, killed, and rise again. And number three, the only reason that that may not make sense to us is because we have not embraced God's way of thinking. So we need to reject worldly thinking and start embracing God's answer to the meaning of life and everything. And just as a little bit of an excursus, it's not really an excursus because it's the gospel, but before we get to verses 24 through 28, which are directed to his disciples, really you can summarize the whole gospel in verses 13 through 23. It's believe and embrace. That's how simple the Gospel is. Believe that Jesus is who He said He was and is and embrace that what He came to do is right and good and true. Or as Paul puts it, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. So simple, but oh so hard. Because to do that, you have to shift in your mind and heart in the same way that Peter had to do. You have to abandon human wisdom to see God's wisdom at work in this message. And honestly, we see in Peter's response, no, this will never be true of you. We see ourselves. The Gospel is folly to us in our natural state. Dear friend, if you're in this room and you do not trust Jesus as your Messiah and this whole message of salvation 
in Him through faith seems foolish, listen, we're all right there with you. Or were. Peter is right there with you. The number one apostle thinks that this whole idea of a dying and rising Messiah is stupid. So you're in good or bad company with all the rest of us. The story doesn't make sense. But to be saved requires us to put our hands over our mouth and say, you know what? Maybe what I think is foolish and wise is not the best measure of things. Peter should have had the humility to question his own evaluation of things. I mean, it's, he just confessed that you are the son of the living God. Are you so confident in your understanding of the world and how things are that you would reject Christ's claims? My prayer for you, and maybe your prayer for yourself, would be to humbly ask God, Lord, if this is Your way of salvation, help me humble myself to see it and to love it and to not think of it as fullest. If this is the message I need to see and believe in order to avoid Your wrath and to have Your life, then make it clear to me that this is Your wisdom. That's what needed to happen for Peter. He needed to be humbled and to know that Christ had the power over death. Only He has that. Aren't the stakes high enough for you to at least consider it? So, that's where you pick up the conversation at verse 24. All that was summary, the context of what's going on. So verse 24, Then Jesus told His disciples. Okay, So we've seen how we should respond to the message to embrace and agree with His identity. And to agree with what He came to do. So, so now what? Is that it? Confess and believe and be saved. Right? Well, not quite. Jesus then turns to address all His disciples. These verses are said to those who follow Him, or want to follow Him, or at least claim to want to follow Him. In essence, His appeal is this. Is this. So, okay, you say, you believe... Who I say I am, you, you believe that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you confess with your mouth that I, that I indeed came to save the world, or at least you're open to not opposing me in this purpose. Is that all true? Okay, well then, here is what I have to say to you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Jesus says, begins with the conditional, if anyone would come after Me. 
Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise from death. And we, we would like to take one of those and leave the other two, right? We, we like that idea of rising from death thing. We don't like so much the idea of being betrayed and killed in a violent way. Why would we want to come after him then? Jesus has already indicated to his disciples, this is where I'm going, this is where my life is headed, and if anyone would come after me, why, why would we do that? Remember, it's all rooted back in verses 13 through 20. Who Jesus is. He's the hero of the story. He is center stage. He is where the action is. He is what the whole thing is for and about. Just as an, an illustration of this, what aspiring actor dreams to be an extra in a toothpaste commercial? You want to be... Center stage, you want the lead role, or at least one of the lead roles. Humans have an innate desire, no matter how suppressed it might be in our hearts, to go where the action is, to be the mo- at the most crucial place, the most critical place, to do something meaningful. And I understand that not everyone wants to be up front or the center of attention, but all of us, I hope, desire that our lives would count for something and matter. Who really loves obscurity and triviality? So that's a good desire. And that's what the Lord is counting on in His appeal. It's as if He's saying, okay, I've told you who I am, that all of this is about Me. I've told you what I came to do to save the world through My life, death, and resurrection. So do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to jump in and be a part of this mission? Well, if you do, here's what it looks like. So the significance of this statement should alert us and astound us. And it's amazing and very significant to me that he doesn't say, if you'd like to benefit from what I came to do. Or if you'd like to enjoy the work I came to do. He says, if you would come after me. So there's no third way to come after Him, whatever that means, or, or as we'll see in a bit, to lose your life for Him is the only way you save it. The stakes are indeed very high. So, whatever you think your life is or should be about or whatever goal you're chasing, if you cannot honestly describe your life as going after Jesus, and we have a lot of work to do to rebuild the whole thing. And please, snuff out that desire you may have. And I know it's there because I feel it too. To justify all we do in such a way that we trick ourselves into thinking that all we do is for Him when it's not really. It's just what the Gentiles seek repackaged with some Bible verses. So, what do we do in order to come after Him? Would we be like the men when David was being pursued by Saul? 
when he was God's anointed, would be, be like those men who came to David's aid because they understood the times, leaving their homes to lend strong support to their legitimate king? Well, as uncomfortable as the answer is, we really can't quibble about clarity from the Lord at this point. He tells us exactly what it means to come after Him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. I don't know how you might define the Christian life if I were to come to you in the hallway of this building and say, define the Christian life for me. Um, There might be many legitimate ways to summarize it, but this is about as good as we can get from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Himself. If you want to come after Him, if you want to follow Him, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. It might not sound or even look victorious. In fact, it sounds quite the opposite. It follows the narrative arc of the Messiah, dying to self as much as we can until our very last breath. This is depressing. (laughs) At least it can be, unless you keep reading and understand that this is the only way out of this thing alive. The phrase, take up his cross, has been confiscated by so many different groups and teachers I want to simplify it for you. It's really not a metaphor here in this context at all. He's not talking about dealing with the suffering that comes your way in a God-honoring way. He's saying, in no uncertain terms, that to follow Jesus means that Jesus' priorities, His plan, His purpose, then become so important to you that you'd be willing to go to Golgotha with your cross if that's what faithfulness meant for you. Deny self, take up cross. It's dying to self. That your purposes, your plans, the things we want are are just dead now because you're willing to go even that far for God's purposes and plans. So Jesus is telling us the cost of discipleship by showing us the priorities of discipleship. Let me say that again. really need to focus. Jesus shows us the cost of discipleship by showing us the priorities of discipleship. Here's what it sounds like. Whatever the Lord asks of me, whatever it costs, I will follow Him. No matter how much of my life is lost or made uncomfortable, and no matter how many of my dreams or plans are put on hold completely or maybe even forever, out of reach, it is no factor. I will follow my Lord. To the young people in this room who claim to know the Lord Jesus, do you understand that this is what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus? Would someone looking at your life with honesty and not biased because of your incredible charm and winning personality say, this young woman, this young man lives his or her life for the sake of Jesus, 
He really shows, she really shows what it means to die to self and follow Christ. To the adults and parents and older ones in this room, are we setting an example of what dying to self, denying self, and living the crucified life really looks like? I fear the example we set for our children is not self-denial and living as if the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Hear the words of your God, your King, your Messiah, your Lord, the One who loves you more than you can ever understand. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me. But that sounds like hard work. And it calls us to consider giving up things that we don't want to give up because they're not sin. And it calls us to embrace and pursue things that we may feel are boring and stodgy. Why would anyone want that? This does not sound like the wonderful plan for my life I was told Jesus had for me when I signed up for this thing. Is that the kind of Christianity that we're offering to others when we evangelize? Come and die. Please understand that Christianity, following the Lord Jesus, is so much more than a belief system. It has teeth. And once you believe who Jesus is and what He came to do, it means that your life begins to look like His in some profound ways. It is not, believe the right things and go to heaven one day, the end. It is to follow Him. I feel so many of us who confess the Lord Jesus suffer from a salvation dysphoria. I know I have. We trust that He is who He says He is, and we know what He came to do, and we believe it, but that dying to self and taking up the cross stuff, we're not so sure about that. Can't I just do my quiet time and attend church and that be enough? And to make sure that we don't over-spiritualize it and think that the crucified life is just a mindset or an attitude that anyone can have no matter what your life looks like, Jesus tells us what He means and why this is the only way to go. Verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is so kind. He tells us why we should deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. Because if you do something else, it won't work. Please understand the point. Jesus is not summoning us to live a dead and dreary, dismal lifestyle because He's a cosmic killjoy. Jesus is not a negative Nancy or a wet blanket. 
He summons us to live this way, to take up our cross and live a life of self-denial every day following Him because all other ways of living end in the loss of your life. There is rottenness and toxicity to other ways of living. That's the point. Losing your life for Him then is the only way that does not end in ruin. Consider how many different ways your life could turn out. Every day presents new opportunities. New paths to go down. You never know where you might end up. The possibilities are endless. But Jesus so helpfully boils down all the possibilities into two simple categories. Try to save your life and lose it. Or lose your life for my sake and find it. That's it. End of story. There aren't any other options. And there is a path before you at this very moment. And you, as a person made in the image of God, you take your soul into your hands every day in the choices you make. At least from this moment onward, Jesus is giving you the spoilers by telling you the plot summary from here on out and telling you the end of both roads. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is saying that the only way out of this thing alive is to lose your life for Him. So you either try to save your life, you try to get the most out of it, you try to make the most of it, you try to have as much happiness, success, and pleasure as you can... You strive to work and to build and to seek and to save and on and on you'll go and maybe it'll work for you. But then when you reach the end, there, sitting by the hospital bed, will be old Solomon. Shaking his head and asking you, why didn't you listen to me? I already tried it. And I did it better than you and it did not work. I lost it all by seeking it all. I warned you, and yet you ran headlong down the very same path. The only other option is to give it away now and every day for the sake of Christ. And your life will be found on the far side of that, following after Him. So, then, the all-important question is, what does it mean every day to lose our life for the sake of Christ? What does it really mean to deny oneself in the pursuit of Christ? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean doing whatever you want with a willingness to do whatever Jesus would ask of you if He just made it clear. Call it a Christianity holding pattern syndrome. Sounds something like this. Okay, here's what we want to do. God, if you want us to do this, make it clear. Uh, if you want us to do something else, make it clear. Okay, nothing, no, no lights, no vision, no, no dreams. Okay, thanks. Then on with what we wanted to do anyway. God wills it. Also, it does not mean seeking what the Gentiles seek, the things of this world, and making it look better because we pray. Dress it up with Bible verses or do it in some vague sense to the glory of God. 
And it does not mean enjoying what you can because life is essentially meaningless. It's all going to burn anyway. Rather, here's what it means. I think that in saying this sentence, I hope it summarizes for you what the crucified life, what losing your life for Christ's sake now and every day means. It means rebuilding all your motivations, all of your plans, all of your dreams, all of your passions from scratch on one foundation. Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. To do that rebuilding from scratch where everything, all your plans, all of your Decision-making paradigms even are built on that one foundation. It may mean a painful season of demolition. I know it did for me, and it does often. In fact, our heart is so prone to wonder that to live a life of denying oneself, of course it means carrying your cross, but it often means carrying around a sledgehammer because it feels like often these, these desires, these plans, these paths crop up and they're not built on the foundation of what Christ, who Christ is, what He came to do, and what He's going to do. We have to demolish. We have to weed out those things. Why do you do what you want to do? Why do you want the things you want? That's the question. Think of your chosen path in life, your plans, your desired career path, your chosen hobbies, your pursuit or non-pursuit of a spouse, the way you rest, the way you use your free time, the way you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. How did you build those things? How did you come to those conclusions and those ways of acting? Did you come to those because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again? Or is it something else? I don't know how much would change for me, for you, for us together as a church if we did that hard work of rebuilding everything on that one foundation. But I feel honestly like when... This is why when we read passages like Acts chapter 2 that summarize the life of the Christians together, why it feels like an idyllic fantasy and not like normal Christian experience. Because their lives were founded on the truth. 100% Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And it seems so, it's, it's, a, it's a comparison contrast. It seems so far off and unattainable because our lives aren't built there. These questions, Jesus asks, are of course rhetorical. He starts in verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what, will, what shall a man give in return for his soul? They're rhetorical. The questions are of course nothing. But it shows us some beautiful insights here. The answer to the first is of course nothing. Even if you gain the whole world, if you lose your soul, there's, there's no real gain in it at all. The answer to the second question 
is of course nothing. Once you throw away your soul in the pursuit of what the world has to offer, then what do you have left to purchase your soul back? You got nothing. I know that we need to avoid the trap of legalism. I don't want any of you to go down the path of asceticism or severity to the body. And I certainly want to stay far away from pietism. However, this is very clear. Jesus is addressing those who claim to want to follow Him. Those who are His disciples. And He's telling us exactly what it looks like to follow Him. And Jesus clearly indicates the dire consequences of not seeking to follow Him in this way. It's not that this is just for super-Christians. It's much more mundane and humble and unassuming than that. It has more to do with sacrifice and service than it has to do with doing any big and grand things for the Lord. But if you don't follow His directives here, if you try to save your life, and you don't lose your life for the sake of Christ, giving it all over to Him to be completely at His disposal, your life will be forfeit. I don't know that I can make the text say anything else. We shouldn't try to. I don't want our lives to be forfeit. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for our church. But I think in many ways this is the culture we're in. And this is what is happening in the church in our nation today. You know, it's not like God is playing a gotcha game. Where you really believe in Him genuinely and your life doesn't line up quite enough with the crucified life and so He's going to bring His hammer down on you. think that because we think it's that way, we just kind of give up and don't try. But no, that's not how our Lord is in His heart and that's not how salvation works. Rather, the answer is this. You will show by your life what really matters to you. And some people's falling away will be more obvious than others. But if you live this life trying to save it and to get all that you can out of it, no matter how respectable it is to the world, and maybe no matter how respectable it is to your parents or your peers, your life will be forfeit. Some of us may protest or ask, well, what does my life and the things that I seek and the plans I have and the dreams I have and the house I want and the family I want and the property I want and the stuff I want, what does all of that have to do with my eternity? Why does the manner of my pursuit of those things definitively affect whether or not I lose or find my life? Hear Jesus from the parable of the seed and the sower from Luke 8. And some of the seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. These are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. 
there is a strangling, Word of God suffocating effect of the good things of life. There's no other way to put it. This is why if you seek these things in this life and do not lose your life for the sake of Christ, your life will be forfeit because the life that is available to you in the finished work and words of Jesus will not take root and it will not bear fruit. And all of this matters because all of this is headed somewhere. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. It's uncomfortable to think of repayment as a description of what Jesus is coming to do. But it's really quite simple. And honestly, it's also very encouraging. This day is fast approaching. And we hold our days in our hands, deciding what to do with them. And if you try to save your life, getting the most out of it, and wasting it on the fleeting pleasures and empty promises of this world, and your success and your plans and your desires, then Christ Himself will repay you with what that kind of life deserves. Ruin. Forfeiture. Loss. But, if you deny yourself and lose your life for His sake, then Jesus Himself will repay you according to that manner of life and grant you eternal life. This is what Paul says in Romans 2. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for those who do good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Please understand, it is not that the Lord is being strict or mean or exacting. The Lord Jesus is not harsh or punitive towards you. And this is not salvation by works. It would never work. The simple point is that clinging to your life and what you want and not living for Him can't end well. And the proof of your faith is seen in this binary decision. Living your life for Him or living your life for yourself. Living your life for yourself will be proof that your faith was in fact null and void. My concern is that we come to expect and endorse a blasé faire version of Christianity. Where as long as you're not guilty of really bad stuff, as long as you think and believe the right things generally, then we're free to live our lives however we want. That is a very popular way. And there are lots of churches that preach that style of Christianity. 
as long as we're not woke or leftist or LBGTQ affirming, as long as we got the bare bones of the gospel right, conservative and affirm the Second Amendment, then it's fine. We're fine. We can go live our lives however we want, chasing whatever we want, and we call it Christian. The world is our peach. No, brothers and sisters. We have lingered too long in Vanity Fair. Let us examine ourselves this way. Have I today denied myself and sought patterns and habits of self-denial? Have I today taken up my cross in humility and put the cause of Christ in the good of His people above myself completely? Would an objective observer look at your life, my life today, and say, here is one who lives believing that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again? Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's a curious passage to be sure, but I think it connects the conversation, this conversation Jesus is having with His disciples, to the church after His resurrection. We won't explore all the different ways of taking this statement, but I think the easiest and least fantastical way of understanding this verse is a reference to His resurrection because of what He says in verse 21. He summarizes His whole mission. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And that's where the story ends in terms of what Jesus came to do because in the resurrection of Jesus, that is the beginning point of the new heavens and the new earth. And the kingdom is ushered in. As we read from Hebrews chapter 7, He is enthroned or installed in His priesthood, His session as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek on the basis of His indestructible life. In His resurrection is when all of it got started. That's when He comes in His kingdom. I think that's what He's referring to. He's essentially promising that some of them will see Him alive after he finishes the work he came to do in verse 21. The resurrection of Christ is the beginning point. And the resurrection of Christ is why it makes all the sense in the world to follow after Him. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, because His resurrection proves that there's something more. Why should you build your life on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because the kingdom of the Son of Man, the new heavens and the new earth, last forever. You see, this kind of life that we've been describing, this, this crucified life where everything is built on the foundation of Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, that's not super spiritual. It's not even complicated. It's just basic math. Forever is a bigger number than however many years you have left. And are you living for forever 
Or are you living for now? The radical, crazy, insane thing would be to trade this world for eternity. The reason this passage works as a charge for us all as a church together for this new year is that you can't live this life alone. I promise. It doesn't work. You hear everything I'm saying and then just try to go to your quiet time with your Bible and you just try to pray this kind of life and these motivations into existence. It's not going to work. I guarantee it won't. We need each other in so many ways, both to create the context for this kind of life to exist and for the help and encouragement and support we need to make it happen. And I'll give you five ways as we close. How the church... How our life together creates the path for this kind of life and gives us the energy we need. The first way is through exhortation. You know what? You're not the best judge of your own life. You are not the best one to look at your life and your heart and answer the question, is this really built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? You need your brothers and sisters to look in and be granted the access to ask, hey, I'm concerned about this or that that I'm seeing in your life and I'm struggling to understand how this life decision or this use of time or this use of funds jives with Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and one day return. Do you grant that kind of access to your brothers and sisters? What happens to them when they ask such questions? There's obviously a mean and nasty way to do this. We should have none of that. We shouldn't be assuming or accusing. We should be asking. But we desperately need real relationships. The second way that the body of Christ enables us to live this kind of life is through service. I wonder how many of us in the course of a sermon about the crucified life and about losing your life for the sake of Christ thought of things like, well, does this mean I have to go and give my life to missions? I've got to be a, a Bible translator in the deepest jungle? Like, is that what it means? That's what I used to think. Lord knows we need more missionaries, ministers, pastors. But that's not what it meant for most Christians in the church in Acts chapter 2. Losing their life for the sake of Christ just meant serving one another in love. They needed the apostles, they needed teachers, they needed deacons, and many other official servants, but the vast majority of Christians it just means living your life for Christ by serving and humbly seeking the good of your brothers and sisters. You know, in the history of the church, there has never been a shortage of those who have wanted an opportunity or a path to do great and mighty things for the Lord but there has always been a shortage of those who will humbly and discreetly serve in self-sacrificing, self-abasing ways and bearing one another's burdens. The third way that the church provides us the context and the energy we need to do this is through encouragement. This kind of life is hard. Narrow is the way and hard is the path that leads to life and few are those who, are, who find it.
Those in this room who have made an honest effort to deny self, take up your cross, and follow Jesus have found that the reality of Romans 7 is so, so real and so, so strong. Even when we do good, sin lies close at hand. We need encouragement. We need help. And you know, if I could do it all over again, I would at least at first be far less interested in things like teaching and preaching and far more interested in being the friend, the brother, the encourager that so many people who have now fallen away from the Lord needed. We need encouragement. Fourth, we need the body of Christ to pursue growth and maturity. The problem is not just that losing your life for the sake of Christ is a hard way to live. The problem is we don't really even understand what that means. And the ideas that come to our minds as to what the crucified life means are probably very, very wrong in some ways. And so the body of Christ is what God has given us to help us chisel away at our bad understandings of what that means. Some of you have a far too radical idea of what it looks like to live your life losing it for the sake of Christ. Some of you have maybe a far too simple or easy way, like a mindset or just attitude shift, and that's not it. We need each other to make progress in growth and maturity as we come to understand what losing your life for the sake of Christ really means. We need each other also to give feedback as to how it's working. You can try to serve, you can try to be an encouragement, and if it's just, here's who I am, take it or leave it, you can hurt a lot of people. Denying ourselves. This is why it all starts with denying ourselves. In losing your life for the sake of Christ, you're giving up your right to be yourself as much as you would want to be. Instead of insisting on being who you want to be, maybe decide to be that which your brother or sister needs, to become all things to all men. Lastly, the fifth way that the body of Christ gives us the context and the means to live the crucified life and to give it up all for Him is family. Losing your life for the sake of Christ is not some far-off, mystical, martyrdom path of life necessarily. It might be for some of us, but statistically it probably won't. It may not mean full-time ministry. You may never go on a mission trip. Often, for most of us, it will simply mean seeing and serving and losing your life for Christ as you love and serve His brothers and sisters. When Jesus says, even as you did it unto one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me, He really means it. As we live our lives and try to build them on the unshakable foundation of Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, there is one more thing to tack on to the end of that statement. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and these are His people. These are His body. His brothers, His sisters, His mothers. 
See, that's where it gets real messy and the rubber hits the road. Like, which one of us wouldn't give everything we have if Jesus were to reincarnate and be here with us and ask us for something? But when it comes from our brothers or sisters that annoy us or that just aren't perfect like Jesus, then it stings. We don't like that. This is why, this is part of why we have such an extensive church covenant and why we take church membership so seriously. You and I are given to each other to live out this life of losing our lives for the sake of Jesus toward each other. So that we can have a real context, real tangible ways, names and faces to live with love the way Jesus did. This is what it means to deny ourselves and follow Him. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. And cleanse yourself so that you can be more useful in doing so. There is no in-between. There is either the daily struggle and striving to deny self and follow Jesus, as we build and spend our lives for the sake of Christ and His people, or there's the daily self-justification of getting most of what you would want anyway if none of this were true. The Lord is returning. And from this day forward, which will be your life? Will you... Seek to save it and lose it? Or will you give it away and every day take up your cross, deny self, and follow Him? May it be said of us. Let's pray. Father, help us not shrink back from the summons of our Lord. His words are so clear. Grant us the humility not to trivialize or sideline what He has commanded us. And might we see His kindness and the encouragement that it is not all vanity. Because if we live our lives for You, then all of it matters. Every moment. I pray that this year for many of us, for myself, would be characterized by demolishing the counterfeit purposes and plans that have cropped up in our hearts. Where we think we're living our lives for You, but really it's just what the Gentiles want. Grant us the humility to do that hard work of self-examination. And might You reward us with the encouragement and the peace knowing that our lives are being lived for You. In Jesus' name, Amen.